Kiara, Nihao, and hello. Welcome to the Chewy Journal podcast. I'm your host, Camille Yang. My guest today is Antoine Dussel. Antoine is a legal tech entrepreneur based in London, and co-founded Doctrine, the first legal information platform in France. Antoine is passionate about law, economics, geopolitics, and languages. In today's episode, we discussed network state, Bitcoin user case in El Salvador, Antoine's language learning experience about Russian, Chinese, and Arabic. We also covered 1729 community initiated writing challenge. I hope you enjoyed this episode. So, okay, let's、uh, start from the 1729. First of all, thanks for organizing the London in real life meetup. That was my first seventeen twenty nine meetup. So nice to meet you in real life. Yeah, it was great. If you could describe seventeen twenty nine to children, what's the best definition you can give? So first, I wonder how I would describe what is a a normal country to a kid. So not only like a network state, like a, like we are doing at seventeen twenty nine, but what is a country? And if I want to describe to a, to a kid what is what a country is, I would say one part of the world with some limits, some boundaries, some borders with the the rest of the world, and inside a common identity, a common sense of belongings, common values, common. It can be a like common language. It can be common. Ethnicity, common group of people. So that's how I would describe it. What a country is to a kid. At seventeen twenty nine, we want to build a cloud country, network state. So it's also a country. So a part of the world with boundaries, with、uh, national identity and everything else. But it's a new country. Maybe if you're a kid, you live in I don't know in France, in China, like. Countries that are quite old,、uh, that have like centuries of history, but a network state is a a young country created by a group of people who like the same things, share the same values, and think that they want to live together, to have maybe also different kinds of laws of rules. Because in one country, what distinguishes one country from another, it's also The rules inside each country. So that's how I would describe what a network state is to a kid. And when I say that, I realize that it's extremely hard, you know,、uh, and that maybe I don't understand it that well myself. You know, it's like the Feynman mind method. If you're able to explain something to a kid, it means you really understand it. And And I, and I'm struggling to explain it to a kid. So yeah, I think even for adults, not many people can get the 1729 concept. Yeah, it's a hard question for you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was trying to explain to my friends who are not involved with Web three or blockchain. It's hard. <laughs> If I want to explain to an adult, it's easier. I would say, oh, I mean,、uh, today we all live in different countries, but I mean, you can feel closer to someone who is at the other side of the world. Because you share the same values, so what if you、uh, create a community online and gradually you move to live together in in one place, and you can maybe start negotiating 
to have special rights with the local government, maybe lower taxes, whatever. And if at some point you have like 1 million people in your community, maybe you can negotiate with a small country like Montenegro to have one special economic zone. When I say that's like this to adults, they understand it because they have, okay, they know what a country is, they know what laws are, whatever. But explaining to a kid, I mean, you have to explain what a country is. And that's when you realize like, that a country is just like something, a construct, like it's an imagine a community because what what is a country? Yeah, that's a question I always wonder, especially, you know, when people talk about China, mainland China and Taiwan and even the Ukraine and the Russia problem. Let, let's define the country first. Let's define the independence of the country first. Then we can discuss more about this topic. Yeah, it's so hard because it's such a modern concept, only 200 years old, maybe. Yeah, yeah because before it was like kings fighting each other and now... Mm-hmm. Lord, yeah. yeah, we're defining. Oh, this is a country. This is like, and and you belong to it, and you have to respect like this and that, and speak that language to be in this country, and and everyone has to be like in the same mold. So yeah, this is fairly recent, as you said. I mean, before the rule uh, all around the world was multi uh, like multi ethnic states, empires, and yeah, it has changed a lot. So how do you define the values from 1729? Because you mentioned uh, people have a certain value can be together. I mean, there are the values uh, as defined by Balaji and uh, the team with him. Uh, truth, health, wealth. I think these are like the goals uh, that we want to reach as a community, as a network state. We want. I think if I look at the members, People are technologically progressive. Um, they see technology as a positive uh, force for change to improve the world, which is in opposition to uh, many people around the world who think, oh, I mean, this is bad. I mean, uh, like this new like, technology, we should ban it. Even before like trying it, it's, uh, the first thing is, oh, I mean, maybe it's like dangerous. So, People in 1729 tend to be optimistic uh, about technology without being naive. And that's like, I think the second value is they are truth seekers. They want to know the truth and they think that there is truth and that we can fi- uh, find it. And that is like the value defined uh, also by Balaji as optimalism. Can we find an optimal Point, uh, is there an optimum like when we analyze any issue so if it's about laws and regulations maybe like in in case of like vaccine regulation maybe there's an optimum and we are not like we don't have like an ideology about like oh we should do this or that no it's like oh what is the best so i think these are yeah two strong va- va- values technologically progressive and optimalism and yeah, that's how I would define so far people I had interactions with. And I mean, and all, also freedom lovers. So yeah, people who like freedom, I mean, who want more free uh, freedom for themselves and also for other 
And that's also like the whole purpose of this network state. So when, when was the first time you heard about 1729? How, how did you get involved with the community? So 1729 started as a blog uh, launched like uh, last year in 2021 by Balaji, um, like various articles about, it was like really broad initially. It was like, oh, how can, can, uh, can you earn money by making some tasks? And one of these tasks was to review an article about the concept of network state. And it, I think it was like one of the first time that this concept was like explained clearly uh, by Balaji. And I answered that, did a wrote a review. Uh, I earned like a small amount of money, like one hundred dollars in uh, I think at the time. Uh, I think you, you, you got that as well, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and then it's like months later that i got contacted again saying hey i mean actually like we're like launching kind of like 1729 season two the next step uh it's going to be more than a blog we're going to create a new country and we want you in i was like okay i mean sounds ambitious and that's how it started so it was november 2021 and i was in el salvador so uh and i was like oh wow i mean everything is like there's like this El Salvador revolution at the same time like people are creating a new country it's amazing like the the new world and the future the uh, the future ahead seems wonderful yeah I see you write a lot of articles about uh, El Salvador so I have no idea where this country based can you give me a general overview about it because I just know they are very progressive in Bitcoin and they have some policies regarding blockchain. El Salvador is a tiny country, really small. Uh, I think it has a population of 6 million inhabitants. Yes, 6.5. So it, it, it's the smallest country in the American continent. It is um, located on the Pacific Ocean, south of in Central America. So, you know, like... The, this, this area that is like a bit narrow between the Pacific and the Atlantic, yeah. near Panama, Honduras, Costa Rica, whatever. Uh, all these countries are more well-known than El Salvador uh, because El Salvador, there is nothing. Uh, there is no local production. There is no, I mean, there was no until recently tourism. And El Salvador was only well-known for one thing, gangs and crime. <laughs> Okay. Um, so until recently, El Salvador was the most dangerous country in the world outside a war zone. So with the highest homicide rate uh, in the world. So that was like seven years ago. So it's quite recent. Uh, El Salvador uh, went through a 13-year civil war in the 90s. El Salvador was like it was like a proxy war between the two empires during the Cold War. So the US supported one side, uh, the Soviet Union supported another side, they gave them money, they gave them weapons, and people, and there were like these political parties, one left wing, one right wing, uh, one like kind of capitalist, one like uh, kind of uh, socialist, communist, and they were like fighting to death. Uh, because El Salvador is so close to the US that it was like a a good opportunity for uh, the Soviet Union to get in the U.S. Um, in the U.S. backyard. Then, end of the Cold War, uh, peace agreement in El Salvador, 
because there's no more reason for people to fight. But the country is so poor that people like move to the US, a lot of young people move to the US. And today, 25% of uh, Salvadorans live in the US. So when you're young in El Salvador, your only dream is to go to the US, either legally, so you, you go to an American school, you study English, you apply to American, or you, maybe you go to high school in the US, or you apply to American universities or whatever, or illegally by crossing the border to Mexico. That's the dream. And this has been the dream for the past 30 years. But what happened is that um, recently, like, um, I forgot the exact year, but I think 2019, a new president, uh, Najib Bukele, was elected. He was not from a traditional party. Actually, he used to be, but I mean, when he ran for election, he was not, because two main political parties uh, dominated the political life in El Salvador, and he was like, no, I mean, I'm not going to be uh, any of them. Like, I'm, I'm a new, young figure um, of El Salvador, and I want to say stop to corruption, stop to 30 years of like these two political parties who just uh, do the exact same thing and it, and alternating from one to the other, but it's just about like them uh, getting bribes and getting richer uh, each time. He was elected like uh, with massive support. He did like all his campaign on Facebook because uh, the local media were against him. Um, so he started like crime decreased significantly thanks to him. So some people say that it's because he um, reinforced the army and the police force. He gave them more money, more weapons, whatever. Other people say that he simply gave money to gangs so that they stop uh, killing people, which I think is fair. I mean, at the end of the day, there are fewer people who die every day in El Salvador. And if the price to pay is to give gangs money, this is not the best way to do so, but I mean, what's the cost of a life? And for instance, the US said in like the US government said, oh yeah, I mean, the Salvadoran government uh, made a deal with gang members uh, and they sent prostitutes to jail for gang leaders in exchange of, of a ceasefire and of a decrease of killings. I'm fine with that. If, if the price to pay to get, to divide the number of, uh, of, uh, of homicides by five or seven, I think it was, is to send prostitutes to jails, I'm fine. But anyway, this is another story. So um, he did that. So he was like quite popular. And then randomly one day in 2021 at the, uh, at the Miami Bitcoin conference in June 2021, he said, hey guys, I'm the president of El Salvador. No one knows where it is. You don't know this country, whatever. It's fine, but, but you, you're going to know it because we're going to adopt Bitcoin as our official currency. Yeah, that's how I know this country's existence. So yeah. that's how <laughs> this country came back on the map. And now everyone has somehow heard about El Salvador as like kind of Bitcoin land. People really don't know exactly where it is. People don't exactly uh, don't know exactly what El Salvador is, but they know it's like the place where like Bitcoin is king, and and I think this is the first success for this country. Mm. Uh, it's a marketing success. 
Uh, and yeah, then I went there like in November because so Bitcoin adoption was announced in June. Three months later, in September, they officially started it. So it was like quite fast. I mean, they had three months to build like the whole uh, wallet and payment infrastructure and like to educate people. Um, and then two months later, so in November, there was a conference called Adopting Bitcoin um, to analyze the technical, economical, social challenges of Bitcoin adoption in El Salvador and to see, oh, I mean, what can we do to improve the situation in El Salvador, but also in other countries, if other countries want to follow El Salvador and also adopt Bitcoin. So that conference was extremely interesting for me. First, because uh, I mean, I got to travel to El Salvador to see how it was, to see how safe it was now. I mean, I felt uh, quite safe. I went there with my uh, girlfriend and we like traveled around the country and also to see the potential of Bitcoin. Because before, for me, Bitcoin was, or I mean, it's about censorship resistance. It's about resisting the government. It's about being able to transact freely. That was one point. Or it's about being an inflation hedge, uh, like, like gold. It's digital gold. It's, oh, how, I can, how can I protect my wealth from uh, money printing? These, for me, were like the two interesting features of Bitcoin. In El Salvador, I discovered that for them, El Salvador's uh, Bitcoin's value is neither censorship resistance nor digital gold. It's more about how you can kickstart a payment system from scratch. So before Bitcoin in El Salvador, only like 20% of people had a bank account or a credit card. And now the majority of the population has a Bitcoin wallet. And according to a recent independent survey, so not according to the government, because I mean, Naib Bukele is like really good at marketing and he gives like figures that are like, that often like seem quite crazy. But like there are some independent studies saying that 20% of people in El Salvador use Bitcoin every month now. And that's only like less than six months after the law was implemented. Um, so it's crazy and, and it has like a huge impact on people's life. And that's also for me like was um, surprising because in the Western world, you see cryptocurrencies as just a way to uh, get rich quick, like DeFi, oh, I'm going to buy NFT, whatever. I mean, these are interesting use cases, but it's not like for the money in the street. Uh, this is not like, these are not like mainstream use cases that will um, enable like a global adoption. In El Salvador, like you see like real, real use cases where you're like, oh, I mean, that makes sense. Um, for instance, if you have like your electricity bill in El Salvador, if you don't have a bank account, or even if you have one, because I guess of the local payment system, how it works is that you go to uh, like a local shop, like a pharmacy, or yeah, pharmacy can be a good example that, that like partners with the government. And at the pharmacy, you can pay cash for your electricity bill. So you say, oh, I mean, here's my bill number. You pay the pharmacy and the pharmacy, I, I don't know how, but send the money to either the government or the, the electricity company. 
which means that if you live in a small village, you have to take the bus uh, to go to this pharmacy, maybe to, to queue. If you have a bank account, you, you have to withdraw cash at the ATM, then you give cash to the pharmacy, whatever. It can take like, uh, depending on how far uh, you live, it can take an hour, two hours, three hours. Now what they, what, what they do is like, uh, they take their bill, I don't know, like they scan a QR code or like or whatever, like they send it from their uh, Bitcoin wallet and it's instant. So it's three hours saved per month for uh, a normal Salvadoran. If you want to add um, money to, if you want to charge your SIM card, uh, it's the same. So you buy a SIM card in a small shop, like for $1. And then you have to activate it and to add money or to buy a subscription online. Uh, but if you don't have a credit card, you cannot. Or even in my case, I had a, I had a credit card, but only credit cards issued in El Salvador, in El Salvador are, are valid. So on the other hand, I mean, anyone can buy online with uh, their Bitcoin wallet. And then you see, you see like how powerful it is to have like this open source payment system that any country can use. And they can like, in a f any country could say, oh yeah, now like Bitcoin is official and let's all use Bitcoin. You just have to download this wallet. And, and yeah, in, in a matter of a few months, the number of people with a bank account, even if it's a, let's say a Bitcoin bank, goes from 20% to 100%. And very good protocol for other countries if they want to implement Bitcoin for their citizens. That would be very good case studies to learn from. Yes, so I, I think there will be a new conference in El Salvador this year. Uh, so like 12 months after the implementation of the law to see, okay, one year later, uh, what's going on here? Have things improved? or not, uh, if there is a bear market, maybe people in El Salvador like maybe scared about using it, whatever. So we, we, we're gonna learn about all that and, and see how we can replicate that model to other countries, if it makes sense. Yeah, that sounds great. I know you originally from France, but now you're based in London. Are you regard yourself as a global citizen? I would like to be a global citizen. So I, I don't know if I am, but I, I would like to be. And I think a global citizen is someone who has like cultural awareness and who can feel at home pretty much everywhere and who can understand the other person's point of view. So even in extreme cases, like maybe understand in the Ukraine uh, war, what's the point of view of people in Russia who support the Russian government? Yeah, I, I would love to be that person, uh, even though it's, it's hard uh, because we all have our own biases, our own preconceived uh, ideas and values, and it's hard to challenge these beliefs. Yeah, if you didn't live, have had the first-hand experience, you, it's pretty hard for you to fully have the empathy or fully understanding of people's uh, culture. Yeah, and as you say, I mean, you, if you don't have like first-hand experience, which means like going there to live in the country, then you only learn things through the eyes of journalists. Mm 
who have their own agenda, uh, whether good or bad. Yeah. And also they see things through their own culture and values. So they analyze things uh, their own way. And, and it's maybe, you may realize that it's like totally different when you go there. I mean, El Salvador is a good example. I, I checked like, before we went there, I mean, I, I checked like the uh, websites of uh, the French government, UK government, US government, and they were all saying, yeah, I mean, how dangerous the place is. I mean, you, you shouldn't go here, you shouldn't go there. And, and then I, I called some locals and they were like, no, I mean, uh, yes, there's crime, but um, it's uh, in, only in some areas. Um, yeah, you'll be fine. And I went there, and I was, and I was fine. So uh, between like the news articles saying El Salvador, the most dangerous place on earth, and my experience there, that it was like two different worlds. So yeah, you need firsthand experience, and otherwise, what you can have is try to talk to people. To normal people who uh, went there or who or who used to live there, so now like if you live in a global city, it may be easier because there are people from all around the world, uh, and you can talk to them. And I think this is better than media or whatever. And it may require to uh, learn the language. And in terms of empathy, I I think that for me, learning languages. Uh, has proven to be a great way to have more understanding of other cultures. It's weird, but like when I learn language, I, I become more interested in like the culture around that language, and I and I feel like that kind of that, that I belong to that community, and I become I, I defend them more. How I, I don't know, like for instance, after learning Russian, I became a bit nostalgic of the Soviet Union, which is really weird because <laughs> I, 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 I do not like like the Soviet Union and, and what it represents. But I was like, oh, I mean, now I understand why some people liked it back in the days and why some people may have some nostalgia of the Soviet Union. So that, that is really weird. I haven't explained that process yet. Yeah, I, I don't know if you watched the movie called the Arrival, it based it based on a novel called the story uh for forgot what the name of that novel uh it's um it's about if you learn the language you will have a new way of thinking because in the movie the the main character who learned the language of the alien so she can see her future because her way of thinking is changed because of learning the new language. So I find it's very fascinating. <laughs> yeah, so th there is like this, like, I don't know if I pronounce it well, but like Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, which, uh, which states that uh, when you speak a language, like your, um, your way of thinking changes. So this hypothesis apparently may not be true, uh, I mean, this, this is a really there's a lot of um, discussion and controversy on that. I mean, I, I don't know for you in uh, English and uh, Mandarin, but for me, I, I'm not exactly the same person when I speak English than when I speak French. Mm. Yeah, I feel the same. Yeah, I feel my personality change yeah, yeah. when I speak different languages. When, when, when I speak English, like I'm really more direct, maybe like more 
uh, open-minded, whatever. When I speak French, I'm going to be like more convoluted, like more like philosophical, whatever. <laughs> it's, but I, I think this is more about the culture that that is behind. Like, mm. and maybe if you start like speaking English with an American accent, you're going to get be like behave more like an American. And maybe if you start speaking more with a British accent, you're going to uh, behave more like mm. a British person. Yeah, that's a very interesting finding. So I know you also speak Mandarin. When when did you start to learn Mandarin? So I grew up、um, in and near Paris Chinatown. So there is a huge、um, ethnic Chinese community in in Paris. I think the biggest in Europe, probably the biggest,、uh, one of the biggest, like、uh, I would say, China in the US, and. Um, so it was ma- mainly、uh, Tichu people, so Chaozhou-ren, and, and also Cantonese.、Um, in my neighborhood, there's also in, in Paris there are also like、uh, people from Tongbei,、uh, from Wenzhou, but they are in、uh, other areas of Paris. And yeah, so I had like、uh, one third of my classmates were ethnic Chinese,、uh, often ethnic Chinese, but originally from. Uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, and yeah, so I was like, oh, I should learn Chinese. So I started learning like Mandarin, and then I like I was like、uh, trying my Mandarin with them, and I realized that they like <laughs> didn't understand because they were all like only speaking like Cantonese yeah, or like Tichu different dialects. Yeah, I mean dialects are actually like different languages. I mean it's not like it's、uh, as different as like French from Spanish or Portuguese, and and then. I was like, oh, I mean, okay, well, I- I'm going to continue Mandarin because I liked it, and yeah, I continued like Mandarin for some time. Then I, I went to China, first like just to visit.、Uh, it was like for Shanghai,、um, like world、um, exhibition,、uh, Shanghai Shou Bo Hui. Oh yeah, oh my god, I was there. Oh, you were there. It's twenty ten. Twenty ten, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Oh, we we met already meet in、yeah. real life, but、yeah. we didn't know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there were like, yeah, a lot of people. So yeah, I went to Shanghai, Suzhou, and then I kept studying, and and then I I did like an internship in Hebei, Hanan,、um, a few years later. Well, I mean, at that time my Chinese was really good because I mean I was like, we were like the a few, maybe we were like five non-Chinese people in a city of ten million inhabitants, and in the company we were working at, like, we were like yeah, mostly only speaking Chinese. So that was yeah, good experience. Yeah, because Handan is not even a lot of Chinese people know where it is. So it's gonna be very interesting experience living there. So what's the highlights of your life there? Yeah, so as you say, I mean, it's like a, a normal small Chinese small Chinese city of ten million people. Yeah, that was the first like the big shock for me. That's like a, a small city that I have never heard of. Has like ten million people and has like huge skyscrapers, like modern things, whatever. I think for me, like also, what was really that how boring life was there, because you have such a huge city with people who are like who have like a decent standard of living. They have like access to all technology, whatever. But still, I mean, you have no restaurants, no cafes, no gym. I mean, nothing to do. It was in two thousand fifteen. I mean, it may have improved since then. I don't know, but. This was really surprising to me. Yeah, just life was boring, 
I mean, and otherwise, I mean, I, I, I love China. I love Chinese people. I love Chinese food. So, I mean, I was really happy. Oh, and like the pollution was terrible. So I think Hantan was, is like the most polluted. Oh, yeah, that's the worst. Yeah, most yeah. polluted city in China. So mm. I was like biking to go to work. And on some days, no. I mean, I, I couldn't see. I was like on one side of the highway. I couldn't see the other side of the highway because it was, it was like so polluted. No. Uh, and I remember like one day we went out like with uh, our colleagues and they were like, oh, uh, look, uh, like there's blue sky today. And we're like, oh. <laughs> So yes, rare. Oh, and it was like, uh, but yeah, um, no, that was a great experience. And I, I think something we discussed in London uh, is the my job at, in this factory was to analyze Chinese, uh, like the local workers and how they were uh, uh, doing their job, because the management of that factory realized that so they had like a few factories in China and some uh, around the world, including in the UK. And they were like, oh, I mean, the cost in China is increasing uh, and the profitability of our fac Chinese factory is decreasing. And at some point, if, if these trends continue, um, the Chinese factory will, like, will make less money than the English one. So they were like, uh, how come? So my job was like to do like tailor, you know, to measure every, uh, everyone, like every movement, everything with the workers. And what we realized was that uh, Chinese workers were not well trained. So they were making a lot of mistakes down the line. Um, and at the, end of the, at the end of the production cycle, there was like a lot of garbage. So a lot of uh, things that were produced had to be discarded um, and thrown away. So that was like driving the profitability down. And why these people were not educated? So there was, a, I think, a language barrier because all the management, all the engineers were like Putonghua uh, speaking, uh, whereas like the workers, even though like in Hantan it's like Mandarin, they were like speaking like Hantanhua. Yeah, so, they have a local one. Yeah, local, like different tones, whatever. Uh, so sometimes they could not understand each other. Also, I mean, in, in, in the factory, it was like uh, 40 plus Celsius degrees, like high nose with the mask and everything. It was like extremely hard um, to hear each other. So I think this was this is also hard. And just then lack of training, lack of education. So something like, you know, what, what, before you measure something with a scale, you have to zero the scale. Otherwise, I mean, uh, this is not like, correct. And a lot of time they were like, they would forget to do that. The, I mean, a lot of mistakes for like stupid reasons, just because mm. lack of training and, and no one checking what they were doing. And yeah, that was like really interesting how training is uh, essential and how, yeah, it can, the lack of training can drive uh, profitability down and, and how China has, has like, still like a long way to go to improve these, um, its, um, its quality in terms of production. But uh, uh, it was seven years ago, and China is like, growing extremely fast. So uh, I'm pretty sure that like, the situation uh, must have improved in the meantime. But it really depends on different regions. If you go to Shenzhen or to visit their factory, that's a totally different scenario. But if you go to like Handan or even my city, some 
uh, factories based in northern part of China is still a lot of uh, labor's lack of training. And, and yeah, because my factory it was not like high tech like Shenzhen. It was mm-hmm. really like uh, industry, and it was not automated. It was like yeah, manpowered, mine based, and old school. I mean, the other thing I learned is that. Like in the Western world, you know, like they say, oh, I mean, Chinese workers, like cheap labor, like they, there's like this idea that like the working conditions in China are terrible. And even though I said that it was like extremely hot in the factory, whatever, I mean, I think it was the same in the UK, just because we were working with like, um, like some ions to, to put like the mold and to heat them. Uh, and the heat was like 1,500 Celsius degrees. So of course... If, if I'm not wrong, if I remember well. So, of course, it was really hot. Um, but besides that, I mean, people had like kind of normal working hours. So if they were doing shift, uh, uh, three, uh, eight-hour shift. Uh, there was like uh, ice cream for everyone every two hours. So then we were like all like eating ice cream uh, and talking uh, to each other. Uh, there was like, yeah, uh, pretty good food for everyone. We were like, uh, eating together, like the engineers and the workers, no, so it was uh, for me. It seemed to this seemed to be good working conditions, and, and and I don't think it was because it was a foreign company that the conditions were better there. When I asked uh, workers, this told me that it was more or less the same in other com- local companies. Yeah, I know there are so many stereotypes or the um, mainstream media coverage about China, which is not true. So apart from that, what other stereotypes you think people hold against China, but based on your own firsthand experience? So China is huge and and people can have like stereotypes on, on both hand, ends of the spectrum. So for instance, like they can say, oh, I mean... China is like a communist country. Or they can have like the opposite, opposite stereotype, which is, oh, I mean, I don't know, China is like uh, now like capitalist, rich, only like uh, Shanghai, Shenzhen. Both are wrong. I mean, probably China is maybe less socialist or communist than some Western European countries in terms of like social aid, social welfare, welfare whatever. At some point in China, I mean, sometimes the, the state uh, won't help you compared to like France. And, and on the uh, other hand, no, it, it's not fully capitalist. I mean, you still have like a lot of government control and you also have like a lot of poverty still in some regions. So I think that's one, I mean, two stereotypes, like this, like communist uh, or capitalist. I mean, it's neither. It's, I mean, or, or just things are not that simple. Then, I mean, you also have um, what I said, like about like, yeah, oh, I mean, China, it's only like a low quality product. Uh, cheap things whatever but uh, but you have like amazingly high quality uh, devices built uh, in Shenzhen and abroad and or they can say oh yeah now China I mean um, they uh, they're gonna overtake us because I mean they are so expert in everything but still I mean for instance China still uh, mainland China still in, uh, needs uh, Taiwan for um, my uh, microchips and even like some are uh, some elements of microchips are only produced by the US, by uh, by EU countries. So again, it's not that simple. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe, I mean, something more uh, controversial is like about like, uh, how religions and ethnic minorities are treated in China. So 
there is the view that uh, let's say like the Catholic Church. So in China, they are, there's the official Catholic Church and there is what is called the underground Catholic Church. And there is this uh, view among in the Western world that the underground church is like persecuted, like, like people, uh, I don't know, like go to jail, whatever. So Hantan is uh, the most Catholic city in, in China. Oh, wow. I don't know that. Uh, so it's, uh, there is, uh, you know, I mean, it's, really impressive the catholic community so i went to church in hantan and i went to the underground church oh. and i was surprised because the underground church was not underground the under <laughs> the underground church was like a proper church uh like quite big uh with a lot of people and it was like and there was like the photo of the pope so officially like the 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 official church doesn't really re- recognize the pope uh, whereas the underground church still like respects what the Pope says, whatever. So it was like a proper underground church. And it was like, it was on Paitu, it was like huge, it was uh, full of people, and I went there. So I went one week, everyone was extremely welcoming, super nice. Everything was great. I mean, they invited me to have lunch, whatever. Uh, everyone talking to me, taking picture. I talked to them people, I took to the priest, I took to the bishop, I took to everyone. Seven days later, I go, no one talks to me. Whoa. And I guess someone told, told them not to talk to me. No one talked to me. No one. And when I said, hey, hi, they said, hey, hi. Well, and then I checked and yes, there has been some persecution in the past. There has been like people put in jail, whatever. But it just... Again, it's not that simple. I don't say there's no persecution. I don't say, uh, oh, it's terrible. It's just, you have the stereotype and you have the reality and, and it's hard to, descri- to describe the, the reality and the stereotype really describe it in a correct way. And, and I, I would not be able myself to describe the situation of Catholics in China. I just have like this first-hand experience where Yes, it seems that they can practice their faith freely, but at the same time, there there are some people put in jail for, I don't know what the official reason, maybe for no reason. And so that's, there are some examples of stereotypes. And I think overall, it's always about the complexity of the situation and and applying one's own standards on another country. So for instance, in Europe, we think, oh, if a religious movement is persecuted, it means uh, people like they all go to jail. It's forbidden to practice the religion. Maybe we we destroy their um, their churches, whatever. And, and maybe persecution uh, happens differently, or maybe it's different in China. But because we apply our own model and we use the same word, persecution, maybe it means it means something different. And that's what is hard, I think. Yeah, I noticed that you also learn a Arabic, right? Yes. Unfortunately, my, my Arabic learning hasn't been a success so far. So I've always wanted to learn Arabic uh, since, um, since I was a child. Uh, and I was like, okay, now I'm in COVID, work from home, I have more time. I know, I mean, I learned other languages. Now it's time to learn Arabic and to eventually fulfill my childhood dream. And Arabic, so the big issue with Arabic is that uh, there is no such a thing as Arabic. Wow. There are many Arabic varieties. 
So you have like stand the you have the Arabic from the Quran, classical Arabic. You have one that is derived from that, that is like a modern standard Arabic, a bit like Putonghua, let's say. Um, and then you have what they call dialects, but again, it's like different languages. And they write in the standard, but they speak with their dialects. So it's a bit like in China before, uh, when people, they were like, they used to speak Paihua, mm. but they, they were uh, writing classical Chinese only. But no one was speaking classical Chinese. Classical Chinese was only written. And, it's, and then you had like this movement of people saying, oh, I mean, you sh we should write Paihua. And gradually, like they added more and more Paihua in, in the books. So, so that like, for instance, Honglomeng, I, th I think it's mostly written in Paihua. And, and, and at some point, Paihua became official. Like no, no one now like uh, writes in, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. But in the Arabic world, you still have this situation where you have a classical Arabic that everyone writes in, but no one speaks it. It's no one's native language. And then you have the dialects, the Paihua, that that are native language, and you have many of them. You have in the same way that you have Cantonese, you have Mandarin, you have uh, Chao Zhuhua, you have Wen Zhuhua, whatever. So you have Egyptian Arabic, you have Syrian Arabic, you have Iraqi Arabic, and, and they don't understand each other. In the same, uh, it depends, more it depends. I mean, if they live close to each other, they can. If they live far away, so Morocco doesn't understand Iraq, but, but uh, an Egyptian will understand someone from, let's say, uh, Palestine. So yeah, it, it, there is a good parallel with, with China. And, and so that's why it, it's such a mess. So it, it's like, imagine if you had to learn Chinese 200 years ago, you would, you would need to learn classical Chinese to be able to read and write and to learn uh, Paihua to be able to uh, speak and to understand. And maybe you, you, will be, you, you would need to learn as well Cantonese. So it's a mess, and there's no standard good method to learn all of that. Uh, so it's hard. That's a pain point. Some entrepreneurs should develop something helping people learning. <laughs> yes, but so the issue in this is that there is a lot of uh, emotions in this debate. So for most Arabic speakers, for most Arabs, um, the only pure um, language is classical Arabic. And they see all spoken varieties or dialects as corrupt versions of the classical one. So for them, it is bad to teach these spoken languages. So if and for entrepreneurs who would start teaching them, they would like get a lot of backlash. So it's, it's not an easy situation. And that's why most uh, learning materials nowadays, they are done by foreigners like me, like who are learning the language and who are like the one saying, yeah, I mean, we are foreigners. We want to learn Arabic. Uh, you guys, you only teach us the classical version, but no one speaks it, so no one understands us. So uh, we're going to uh, create methods to learn the uh, spoken version. But this is 
not uh, welcomed by many Arabs. Oh, I see. Same situation in China. A lot of Cantonese speakers, they think Cantonese should be the official language, not Mandarin, because they think, and also the traditional Chinese written should be the one we keep, because uh, they, they contain a lot of meanings in the Hanzi character, not like the simplified Chinese lost the symbolic meaning. Yeah, there's a debate in China as well. Yeah, there is this debate, but I, I think the, the difference is that, like, the, the difference is that, like, this classical Arabic, no one speaks it. It's no one's it's no one's native language. Yeah, parents don't speak it to their to their kids. But yeah, you you have all around the world debates about language and what is right and what is wrong. And I think, like, for instance, uh, in, in the traditional Fantizo uh, again Gentizo uh, debate. Uh, traditional Chinese against like simplified Chinese, like some people say, oh, I mean, simplified is bad because it was introduced by the communists, and they're like, oh, this is bad. But I mean, this is not true. Um, simplified Chinese has uh, simplified characters have existed like long before uh, communist China. People like used to like simplify when they were like writing on paper, and, and you can see them like like, like centuries ago. And it's like, even like there are like some texts. You, I mean, I think you can like Google it on. There are like some written letters. I, I think from like some Taiwanese leaders, where you see that when they write, they use simplified characters when like, handwritten. Mm, yeah, even a lot of calligraphies, like hundreds years ago, is a simplified. Yeah. And 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 what communists said, it's for me, it's a bit like, uh, oh, we're gonna go from classical Chinese to Paihua to spoken Chinese. They said, oh, I mean, everyone now writes these simplified uh, characters, so we're going to make them official and let people write them. So, I mean, traditional characters, I think they're just really complex. No? I don't know. Yeah, it is very, a lot of strokes, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 as a foreigner who, who's like learning the language, I, I can. <laughs> I see. What about the Russian? Is there also a, a lot of variations in Russian or this is a standard one? Oh, it's, it's an excellent question because Russian is the opposite. Mm. Russian has like almost no uh, variation. Wow. So you, um, uh, like someone wrote an article, like a, a paper about that, like a, a scholar, because you know, like when you open like your computer and you select one language, usually you select like the language and the country. So when you select English, they say, oh, do you want like British English? Do you want US English? Do you want Irish English, South African, whatever? If you want Chinese, you have like, oh, if you want, do you want Chinese Taiwan, Chinese China, mainland China, Chinese Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia, uh, France, you have Belgium, everything, Spain, uh, Spanish, is it like you want Mexico or Spain? Um, for Russian, there's just Russian usually. <laughs> Even though Russian is like one of the most spoken languages in the world, and it's spoken, uh, it, like, it's official in uh, maybe a dozen countries, mm -hmm. like Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, Azaba it's also like spoken in Azerbaijan, Moldova, whatever. But uh, Russian, and I think because of the Russian uh, culture, it's really standardized, and there's one correct Russian, and it's the Russian from Moscow. And there is no allowed variation, kind of. And I think that's also an, an issue, and it would help to recognize and acknowledge that 
they are local variations of Russian. And maybe the Russian spoken in Ukraine is not exactly the same as the Russian spoken in Russia, the same way that the French spoken in France is not exactly the same as the French spoken in Switzerland or in Belgium. But by saying that there is only one Russian, this also is a way to defend the ideology of the Russian world that all ethnic Russian people belong to the same community and that they should all be in the same country. Uh, and that's the ideology that is uh, behind some uh, Russian political leaders. Yeah, I think Putin stated this in his speech. Exactly. So this would mean uh, merging or unifying Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, but also uh, Baltic countries with significant uh, ethnic Russian populations, also Moldova, also north of Kazakhstan, uh, and maybe other places. Mm. I see. When I was uh, briefly working in Latvia and uh, Kazakhstan, I do see local people have a different uh, attitude towards Russia. Some are very pro and some they... Even they can speak Russian, but they don't want to. They want to speak their own local language, especially in Latvia. A lot of local people, if you speak Russian to them, they can understand, but they won't speak back to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've never been to Latvia, but I know some ethnic Russian Russians from Latvia. And yeah, they told me the same. And I, I mean, yeah, it, there are apparently huge tensions. And I... And this is bad because then these tensions are used by uh, the Russian government to say, oh, look, Russian speakers are discriminated against in, in Latvia. And, and that's maybe true. For instance, I think that the Latvian government forced like Russian schools to either closed or to like now speak Latvian, which means that uh, Russian ethnic Russian kids cannot be taught anymore in their native language. Um, and I, I don't think this is great. Um, and yeah. then th this can be used as a way to say, look, I mean, uh, our ethnic Russians are discriminated against. We have to defend them. Yeah, I see. I'm very curious because since you speak many languages and uh, have uh, uh, the culture understanding, so where do you get your media source? How do you consume information? Um, so uh, unfortunately, I, I don't speak uh, all the languages I, I learned. Uh, but uh, so regarding media sources. Take a Ukraine-Russian war as an example, like if you want to fully understand the situation. For like the war between uh, Russia and Ukraine, um, I receive a newsletter uh, in Russian uh, every day about a uh, Russian um, independent, one of the few remaining Russian independent media called uh, Meduza. They also have one in English. I, I read it a bit. I mean, I, I can read a bit in Russian, but otherwise I, I translate with uh, Google. You know, when you re receive the email, you can one-click translate. That's great to get a better understanding. Otherwise, I, I am like in some Telegram channels that are really pro-Russian government. Because I mean, I, I already have like the pro-Ukraine uh, 
version because this is the main version like that is mainstream in, in Western media. And I also have like a Ukrainian friends. Uh, so, but I have fewer, um, I don't know Russian people. I, I mean, I know a few uh, who are like really pro Putin. Um, so yeah, the best way for me to get the other side is to be in these channels. I'm, I'm very curious about your your method to learn languages. Like how? Because not a lot of people think if you become adults, it's hard for you to learn new language. What was your method and tips you can give people who want to learn new languages? So yeah, I mean, I think it's harder when you're adult, but it's mostly because you have less time. Um, and and oh yeah, well maybe like your brain also like functions like uh, not not as fast as when when you're a kid, but it's still possible. And there are like many examples of people who learn languages being adults. So um, for me, like I I use um, usually an app called Pimsleur, P I M S L E U R. The name is terrible. I mean they should change it. And that app is wonderful. I mean, uh, I learned like many, I, I used it like for, uh, for Mandarin, for Russian, for Spanish, for Turkish, for Arabic. Uh, and yeah, that's it. And so the way it works is that it uh, mimics the way that kids learn the language. So when you're a kid, like your parents don't teach you grammar. They don't teach you how to read and write. They, they don't teach you all the things that you were taught when you learn a language at school. Your parents, like, yeah. they just t- tell you, oh, what is this? Bottle, bottle, water, water. Uh, do you want a cake? Cake, cake. And at some point, you're going to say uh, cake as a kid. And you just repeat words. And then once you have these small words, you start creating sentences. And often, like you repeat what you've heard, and then you start creating sentences yourself. So that method does the same thing. So the first lesson, you, uh, they're like, "Oh, let's listen to this conversation in Mandarin," and you listen to a one or two minute conversation in Mandarin, like "ni hao, ni hao, ni hao ma," and you're like, well, "Of course, you don't understand anything." You're like, "What? What the fuck is that method?" And then they're like, okay, let's repeat after me. How, how, ni, ni, how, ni, how, ni, ni, how, ni, how. Ni, how means hello in Chinese. Say hello, ni, how. So you, you repeat in, in sometimes a stupid way. You repeat, you repeat words, but like in reverse orders. You start like with the last syllable, like how, ni. You, you repeat sentences, but without order. And you repeat, and, and you're like, what are they? Why? And at the end, they're like, let's listen again to the conversation you, you heard 30 minutes ago. And you understand everything, and that's mind-blowing. So each lesson is 30 minutes long, um, and you have um, 30 lessons per uh, level, and depending on the language, you have one to five levels uh, per uh, per language. Mm-hmm. So that's a total of like um, for for language languages that are well covered, it's one hundred fifty uh, lessons. So you can, if you do like one every day, in six months, you have with that method you have like a decent 
pronunciation, a really actually a great pronunciation, and you have like the basic vocab, kind of the basic vocabulary. You can like ask people, oh, I mean, if you're in the street, oh, where is this place? How much is this? Uh, can I order that? I would like to do that. Uh, can you help me? Like basic conversation, but with an, a great accent. And I think, and I think that's essential because the issue, like when you with other methods, all the methods are based on written materials, which and often like they would write. Let's say like uh, if you're learning learning Chinese, they're going to start teaching you with like pinyin. So with Chinese transcribed using a Latin alphabet. So the issue with that is that if you're let's say an English speakers. You're gonna use the pronunciation that of letters that you know in English to um, to read like the pinyin. So if you say like, "Oh, my father," you will say "wode uh, baba" uh, like this, and, and no one say "wode baba" uh, because like the, the B, even though it's written B with uh, uh, it's not pronounced B as the uh, the English B. So it's more like a, an English P, actually, almost P, actually. Um, uh, but this is really hard because, like, this is like in your brain, like the connection between letters and pronunciations, uh, and you know it for like your for your native language. And I think that's why Pimstra is amazing because it's only uh, audio, so you don't you, you will not have like these bias and like these issues with uh, applying. Uh, the pronunciation from your native language that you already know. But this is not enough. Uh, then you need to uh, vocabulary, you need some grammar, uh, and you need to practice. But I think Pimsleur is uh, an amazing and necessary basis to start. And actually, I mean, I, I wrote an article about that, about uh, language learning and how I think anyone can be pretty much fluent in six months. Wow! Uh, in any language, I'm going to take this challenge to learn my Portuguese. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, I mean so that that was like for me the point. I was like, okay, I mean, uh, I know nothing about Russia. I I want in six months to better understand Russia and to speak some Russian. And I mean, I'm nowhere fluent in Russia in Russian because I don't uh, practice it anymore. But I I think I reached my goals, and, and I'm pretty sure in six months you're gonna. Fluently walk around the streets of Lisbon uh, and saying, Hola, tudo bem, tudo bem, homme, muito prazer. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I do feel like, yeah, if I learn the letters, because I already knew the different pronunciation for different letters, like A, B, C, D, they pronounce different in Portugal, it takes my brain power to switch it. So, it's terrible. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> and, and, and then like, when you want to speak, you're thinking about how it's written <laughs> as a way to remember it. But this has to become like the pronunciation has to become something automatic that is that is in your that is in your brain. And for that, you, you have to forget the, uh, the reading part. Um, and once you have the pronunciation of the of the sound, especially the sound that do not exist in your own language, like in Portuguese, you have like this oh, um and like Sao Paulo, uh, and this is hard. Uh, or you have like all, like all the sh, uh, I mean, I, especially in Portuguese from Portugal, I mean, it's really hard. It is, yeah. I'll try my best. 
we haven't covered your career path yet, and I, I never asked about you. Can you share a bit about uh, career, your personal story? So, a uh, short version: uh, I was born and raised in Paris, and then uh, fast forward university, I studied maths initially, and then I uh, moved to biomechanical engineering. But I've never actually um, really practiced biomechanical engineering because I, I did internships and I realized that it was a a bit too slow innovation in the field because of regulation. Like in, so, in healthcare in in the medical uh, industry, it's, it, it was too slow for me. Uh, so I was lucky because in my university there was also like an entrepreneurship program where you could go to the US, like to uh, UC Berkeley for six months and like there try to launch a startup. And I did that. I tried to launch a startup. It didn't work. But back in France, back in Paris, uh, with friends of mine, we were like, oh, we want to launch something. We brainstormed. We found uh, that the legal industry was uh, kind of antiquated and using methods from the past. And they were not uh, yet using like the most um, uh, cutting edge technologies. So we're like, oh, what if we have them? What if we apply well-known uh, and proven technologies to the legal industry? So we use legal data to create a better, faster, uh, and more efficient search engine for French lawyers. Uh, and that was in 2016. So six years later, uh, it's going well. Uh, we have like thousands of customers in France. It's called Doctrine, doctrine.com, doctrine.fr. We are mainly uh, focusing on the French market. Um, and then there was COVID. So I was like, uh, we moved, we switched to remote work like most companies. And I was like, oh, I mean, whether I work from my home in Paris or from my home uh, anywhere, it would be the same. So I took uh, advantage of remote work to travel a bit. Uh, and also to move to London because I met my girlfriend and that's where she happened to live. So now I'm in London, which is a, a, a city I really like. Uh, and I'm also now looking at uh, other opportunities in addition to uh, overseeing my existing business. Uh, and, uh, and I'm also like participating in uh, different communities, including 1729. Mm. So what's the goal you would like to achieve with the 1729? I mean, of course, I think the dream would be, oh, yeah, we're going to create that new network state, like, and we're going to all move uh, in these different, like, uh, hubs of the network state. Okay, this is maybe like the project of a decade or of a lifetime. I mean, first goal is to meet this amazing community, community because uh, we are now 600, and, like, so far, every sing single person I met uh, was, like, interested, and we had like great conversations and how I can like also like leverage this community to uh, organize event to uh, create like yeah a sense of belonging and and then something I think that I may do with 1729 could be some evangelization so maybe we did like meetups with people from 1729 we could also organize meetups open to anyone and explaining oh what is network state what uh, what what are these concepts what could we do with that uh to have like 
more people um, aware of, of that and maybe they could start their own uh, community there not everyone will like 1729's values uh, but the concept behind it I think is universal and the last step would be uh, Balaji wants to uh, create that tech tree so like the different building blocks that would uh, once uh, built yeah. enable uh, the tech stack of a new country of a network state so if if there is uh, one building block I can contribute to uh, from a technical uh, point of view, I would be happy to do so. I also noticed that the community also doing some writing challenge and uh, we were been writing for five weeks nonstop now. Every week we publish some articles relevant to the network state. What was your takeaway from this uh, community initiated activity? So yeah, this is a, uh, an excellent example of the power of the community because we have like a lot of smart people. So we are starting to ha to have like some bottom-up initiatives. So it's not only like Balaji telling us what to do. So I think that's great. And so you like you're a prolific writer, um, and you already have like a a great community. And for me, like writing, uh, I have to force myself a bit to write, and. This challenge is a great way to force myself because otherwise I would still be like, oh, I mean, no, I mean, this week, oh, I, I don't have time. I, I, I don't want to, whatever. And, and with this, I'm like, okay, every week, one article. And before that, because I mean, I, I did like previous challenges with Grant. It was like, it was one article per day. Wow, no um, way. <laughs> it's, it's actually, it's, it's great. It's a great experience. So I, I did that twice. Yeah. It's time consuming, it's a bit tiring, but it, it's a good experience because, yeah, you discover that, I mean, you just have to do it, actually. There's a lot of mental pressure and, and, and if, it's, if you want to write something short, it's, it's great. It's actually way better to write something short. Uh, it's better for your readers, it's better for you, it's going to be more straight to the point. Um, so, yeah, I, I admire people who... Uh, write like every day or every week for like years uh, and it's it's a, a way to refine your own thoughts uh, on a subject and it's a way to build your personal monopoly um, there was an article that like someone published in this writing challenge about how you can increase your luck volume uh, and it's based on a, another concept of like luck surface area Think that um, there's no luck in life. Like your luck is, um, the, the your luck is proportional to uh, how like how much you're doing something you're passionate about, and how much you uh, effectively communicate what you're doing to people. So you, by writing, you communicate who you are. What are you, uh, what your values are? Uh, what you're doing, and and it's amazing. And, and I guess I mean this is probably the case for you. But uh, I, I realized that I mean after I started like publishing some articles about things I care about, like network states, um, people like starting to uh, contact me to um, invite me for events. Uh, it's also like um, a, a way. It's a, it's great. Like when you have 
you, you can send your content to people. If someone says, if, if, if you ask me, oh, I mean, how did you do to learn languages? Like, I can tell you, oh, it's easy. Like, just read my article. I, I wrote about it like uh, a few like months ago. It's amazing. And, and it's hard to realize the potential of writing uh, until you start doing it. So everyone... Greater serendipity. Yes. Yeah, yeah great. Yeah, great way to... Uh, I think that's how we met each other online. I think I wrote something about how to make friends. Oh, ex yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you wrote about that. Yes. <laughs> and I answered on Twitter. I was like, oh, I mean, what, yeah. what, what about like meeting them in real life, whatever? Yeah. Uh, and then you meet, and then, and then, you, and then you can chat, and that's how like you you build a relationship, and then you can meet meet in real life, and yeah. No, it's it, it's amazing, and for me, like over the past, yeah, 12, 20 months most interesting people uh, I met during the yeah the past two years were people I met online mm, same and, and it's it's often uh, yeah it's often like an, an article I read like a a blog post uh, and, and then I answer the uh, I, I sent something to the author and then we chat and then oh oh you also live in London oh let's meet and then like the person becomes a friend that's great if people want to connect with you, where should I direct them to? Twitter, like ADSSX, or my website, ADSSX.com. Cool. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's great. Hope we'll see each other again in real life soon. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Thanks a lot, Camelia. See you.